want to start with a question. When was the last time that you felt just dissatisfied? Things just weren't going how you wanted them to go. Perhaps there's just a sense of angst in your life. Uh, maybe a job you're working at just seems banal and meaningless. Certain choices you've, you've made just end up turning sour. Your, your plans are constantly being thwarted by things outside of your con control. When's the last time you just felt discontent, unsatisfied? I can think back for myself, kind of back at the height of some of the COVID-19 lockdowns and the pandemic, I remember feeling some of this source of dis this sense of discontentment. It seemed like anything fun to do with the kids was closed. It was almost like a mantra riding in our car. We'd usually driving to a walk or something, one of the few things that was open, a hike. And one of our, one of our kids would ask us something fun to do. You know, can we go swimming? Can we do th this or that? And we'd say, no, we can't do that. And they'd say, why? Why, why can't we do that? And almost in unison, the whole car, the pandemic, I'm sure everybody has similar stories where it's just, it just felt like life was stalling. There was a sense of things that should be happening that weren't. And you kind of felt a sense of discontentment, of angst. This morning, we're going to look at the book of Proverbs and to see what this ancient book of wisdom has to tell us about contentment in the Christian life. But first, I want to back up and just let's just consider what the book of Proverbs is. Because the book of Proverbs can kind of seem like, can seem a bit enigmatic, can it? It just kind of seems like this collection of pithy quotes that maybe have no bearing on the rest of the biblical narrative of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. But I think if we look a little closer, the book of Proverbs is actually far more important than, uh, than we might give it credit for. So listen with me to the introduction, the first uh, seven verses of the book of Proverbs. Uh, he starts out and says, and he's talking about the purpose of the book. He says, it's for learning wisdom and discipline, for understanding insightful sayings, for receiving prudent instruction in righteousness, justice, and integrity, for teaching shrewdness to the inexperienced, knowledge and discretion to a young man. Let a wise person listen and increase learning, and let a discerning person obtain guidance. For understanding a proverb or a parable, the words of the wise and their riddles, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. So I want to pull out a few key truths from this introduction. First, he starts out saying that this is for learning wisdom. Well, what is wisdom? That can even be sometimes hard to define. And it's used differently throughout the Bible, but it, kind of a common definition that we, we encompass a lot of that is that wisdom is skillful living in the world God has made. Skillful living in the world God has made. But notice this wisdom, it's, it's a particularly God-centered wisdom. Notice it's, it's for teaching in, in righteousness. There's a righteousness, God-centered focus to this wisdom. See, every day around us, the world is catechizing in a sort of worldly wisdom. We're being taught skillful living in a way that rejects God and his rule. So we need to have our cultural and even our own personal twisting of the reality of God's world reversed by his wisdom. This is why in the book of James, James says we need wisdom from above rather than the wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. So we need, we need God's wisdom to invade our life. But, the, but this wisdom, it's not just a nice thing to have. I think often we can t kind of treat it in, in Christian circles as kind of an appendix to the Christian life. You cut it out and it doesn't do much. But if you look at it, this, in the book of Proverbs, wisdom is actually a life and death issue. Proverbs 13, 14 tells us, 
The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. So if we, if we don't learn this, it might even lead, it's lead to life and death issues. And if we have all of these other Christian virtues but not wisdom, if we have love but not wisdom, we can lead others astray or perhaps waste our time with unfruitful endeavors. We can think of Jesus you know, telling us not to cast our pearls before swine. Not, we, there's an effectiveness to wisdom there's, that's essential for us to learn. So secondly, notice this. Who's this book written, written for? What's its audience? And in verses 3 and 4, it says it's to the inexperienced and to the youth. Then also in verse 5, it says it's to the wise. Now, a lot of scholars think that the book of Proverbs had a particular special use for training young men for the Israelite court or in, in other pagan contexts for bureaucratic office. But you can see throughout the book of Proverbs, there's kind of a democratization of wisdom, that this is t- intended for the young and the old, poor and kings. And we can really see this in the, just the nature of the topics covered. The situations are just kind of the staples of ordinary life. They're not always that extraordinary. Marriage, friends, raising kids, discreet speech, diligence and harvest, polite manners, concern for the poor and the neighbor. So we could, and we can even really see this just even in the, the name Proverbs. What, what, what is a proverb? Well, the, the Hebrew noun proverb is actually related to the verb that it just means to represent or to be like. So a proverb is really just a little model of reality, a little verbal representation of some aspect of our daily life. And indeed, this is why Proverbs is freely quoted in the New Testament as applicable to the whole congregation. So I think we really need to avoid this error of thinking that this is the book for kind of the elite, maybe the, the super smart, the super intelligent Christian, the mature Christian. This is, this is something we all need. But lastly, we see this, this super important verse, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, if you looked at, at verse 1, verse 7 there in your Bible, you'd see it's the, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, which is what, what the English translations do for the, the Hebrew word Yahweh. And remember, this is God's covenantal name that represents his special relationship with his people. And this really ties Proverbs into the rest of our Bible because this book is written for that same community we've been reading about in 1 Samuel. We've been going by week by week with Jared. It's that same covenantal community, the same covenantal community out of which was, God was going to bless the whole world through Abraham, the same community out of which David's greater son is going to come. So it's, it's really, it's for us. It's for the covenantal community. This isn't just a collection of kind of nice, smart things that would be good to know. This, this is for God's people. All right, so we, we've, we've covered what is the book of Proverbs. Let's dive in. Because we're going we're gonna to see from all these, these sayings of the wise, how do we understand contentment in the world God has made? And first we're going to see contentment is fixed in God's sovereignty. Contentment is fixed in God's sovereignty. Listen to Proverbs 16, verse 9. A person's heart plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. A person's heart plans his way, but the Lord determines or establishes his steps. Perhaps the most common source of our lack of contentment in our lives is our lack of trust in God's plan. Because here we see a juxtaposition. A person plans his way, who they're going to marry, where they're going to live, what they're going to do for work, how successful they're going to be, how happy they're going to be in all these endeavors. But our plans are contrasted with God's fixed and established uh, establishment of our steps. It's almost like our plans are written in pencil, 
but to be erased and fixed in ink by the ordination of God. And we saw this work out last week when Jason was preaching on, on Jonah. Jonah's plans were quite clear. He was not going to Nineveh. He knew God was gracious, and he didn't want that grace being extended to the Ninevites, who he thought were not deserving of it. He had his plans written out, and he went to great extents to ex execute his plan, but God fixed his steps, didn't he? There was no stopping the plan of the Lord. So if you think with me about the greatest causes of discontent in your life, is it possible that this discontentment stems in a lack of trust in God's plan in his establishment of our steps? Because Proverbs won't even let us escape out of the, the bad luck escape hatch. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Why do we, why do we cast lots? Why do we roll dice? Because they're, they're random, right? Well, Proverbs is, Proverbs is saying even seemingly random events are in God's control. So it doesn't even let us get out of that escape hatch. But if you've thought about these verses for any, any bit of time, or just even the reality of God knowing the future, you, you know you're on the horns of a huge theological dilemma here, right? If, if God establishes even seemingly random events of our life, how do our choices matter at all? How are we responsible? Now, time prevents me from exploring all the nuances of this topic. Theologians down through the ages have, have spilt huge tomes on, on the topic of human responsibility and God's sovereignty. But I, and I do would recommend you go back to Jared's sermon back a few weeks ago in 1 Samuel 16 when he, when he delved into the issue of Paul, uh, uh, Saul's evil spirit sent from the Lord and how he kind of dealt with all the nuances of that topic. But for our purposes, I just think we just need to affirm two important truths that we see here throughout Proverbs and throughout all of Scripture. The first is God ordains all that comes to pass. As Ephesians 1.11 says, he works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. And the context there is from eternity. But secondly, secondary causes, human actions and decisions, are essential to this plan, not meaningless, and, we, and God, God's uh, decree actually establishes our responsibility. Because you see, if we err on either side of these two truths, we'll run into huge issues. If you only believe in God's sovereign control, then, uh, but not in the reality of the means by which he's going to bring about his plan, you're going to be lost in nihilism. Okay, sarah, sarah, what will be will be. It doesn't matter what I do. But if you're only on the human determination side, which is really kind of what's ingrained in us from our cultural point of view, what does every movie say? Whatever you put your heart and mind to, you can do it. And we, and we all know intuitively that's not true. If we don't believe in God's, in God's determination, you're going to be wrecked by every decision. How in the world are you going to decide huge momentous decisions about who to marry? If that's only up to you, if God's not directing your steps, <laughs> you're, going to be, you're going to be fretting that like crazy. What, which college to go to? Which job to take? I, I really like it. Uh, Kevin DeYoung has this great book on, on making decisions and the will of God, and he really breaks it down. He says, first you say, is it sinful? I got two decisions to make. Is it sinful? You look at the, the thing itself, your motives for it. Then you ask wise counsel, and if both still seem good, you, you just make a choice and trust God. If, if, if God's sovereign... He, he, can, he can change your course, right? That's really freeing, right? That really brings a, a sense of contentment to our life where, where we focus on, on the important things of, is, is what I'm doing sinful? Am I listening to wise people give, give me advice? And, and this really helps us look at difficult circumstances with any hope. Because if God isn't establishing our, our, our steps, 
How can we have any hope that a good God can work even the worst things for our good? That's a huge source of our discontentment. Paul really models this for us, his belief in God's absolute meticulous sovereignty and the importance of human decisions in Acts 27. See, in Acts 27, his ship is caught in this storm, and there's just not much hope left that they're going to survive by him or the or, you know, experienced sailing crew. And Paul tells, but Paul tells the crew, he says, an angel appeared to me and he told me that he and the crew would survive, fixed in God's plan. But then he doesn't sit on his laurels. Paul, Paul then says, he tells the crew they must run a ship aground. See, he believed in God's absolute sovereignty of God's plan, his, the absolute certainty of it, and that that plan would come about by his faithful obedience. Ultimately, we, we come down to mystery here, but, but we can see real world working out of this in the life of Paul, the life of Joseph. So if we're to have biblical contentment, we must ground it in the reality of what uh, Proverbs says on God's decisive plan for our life. To live with wisdom, with skill in God's world, is to understand that he's not passive, but actively working out his will. So how do we, how do we use this practically? Perhaps one of our greatest sources of discontent has been brought about by malicious actions of others, evil things people have done to us. But Proverbs 16.4 tells us, the Lord works out everything to its proper end even the wicked for a day of disaster. And I think we can really see this in the early Christian church in the second and third centuries. They were undergoing immense, intense persecution. And if you read about some of these Christians who eventually would become martyrs, they, they kind of went to their death with an um, otherworldly confidence. But you read their writings, and part of their trust was an unfading trust that God would not let the wicked go unpunished. They knew that, that any, any vengeance he would give would, would be far greater than anything they could. They had a, a solid grasp that God, that God had a plan for the wicked. So first we have to see our contentment is grounded in God's sovereignty. That's all throughout the book of Proverbs. Second, Christian contentment is grounded in the right approach to money and wealth. Now I, I think anytime we hear the word money in church, you start looking around for like a thermometer and like a fundraising campaign, but we're, we're not talking about that. I think we, we seriously need to think about our contentment and our possessions and our wealth. See, it's Jesus who often in the New Testament uses money to find out where does our treasure really lie. It really gets to the heart of the matter, doesn't it, when we start talking about our possessions and money and finances. What's the source of our contentment? What's our hope? It's Jesus who tells us we can't serve both God and money. So this isn't just some side issue where where, oh yeah, the Bible says a few things about money. At times in Proverbs, in the New Testament, it's a huge issue. So listen with me in Proverbs 30, verse 7, the one we read earlier. The writer says, Two things I ask of you, Lord, do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Some have jokingly called this the great middle class verse because he says, give me neither poverty nor riches. But you notice that the, the writer of the Proverbs sees temptations in both having too much and too little. His desire is just to have his needs met, to be content, to be satisfied. I think that's really the posture of the Christian. No, notice in verse 8 he says, he includes us with falsehood and lies and that there's this deceptiveness of both wealth and poverty. The former convinces one that God is not necessary and the latter that he is either of no help or that his laws are impossible to keep. 
Have you noticed this in your own heart, that just the deceptiveness of riches? When you, when you finally got that thing you wanted, and then you realize, well, now it's not enough. Now I want more. My wife and I, we've, done, we've been looking around at some, some houses here and there lately, and to me that always brings it out. It's like, it doesn't always seem if you just bumped your budget up just a little bit, that, that would get you into the right neighborhood. That would get you exactly what you're looking for. Or, man, if you just would have timed the, you know, the market just right, that would have that solved all your issues. But we all know our own heart. We could, give, we could get the, the perfect house where we would write down every list of we wanted, and from our own experience, we know it wouldn't be long before our hearts would find a way to covet something else, to be dissatisfied. There's a deceptiveness to wealth and riches. And God's wisdom is calling us out on this, confronting our idols of our heart to not put our hope there. Proverbs also tells us that these riches are fleeting. Proverbs 23 verses 4 and 5 says, Do not wear yourself out to get rich. Do not trust your own cleverness, but cast a glance at riches and they are gone, for they will surely sprout wings and fly off like to the sky like an eagle. So we know even when we do get, get what we want, at times it, it can be gone in a second. It's not what we don't put our, our trust and hope where moth and rust can destroy. Our, uh, our desire should be to have enough. Our desire should be to have enough. Should God choose to bless us far beyond what we, what we desire or give us far less, it's up to God's sovereign plan, right? We can see faithful Christians throughout uh, Scripture who were both rich and were both poor. So in, in, in plenty and in want, the Christian should be satisfied in whatever God gives them. And that's just the common theme in their lives, a simple trust in the provision of God. But it's interesting the writer also notes that he doesn't wish poverty on himself. This runs kind of counter to various streams in the Christian tradition that seem to promote severe asceticism and poverty. If you can read about like the, the desert fathers where, where certain Christian leaders would, would go and live these harsh ascetic lives in the desert to, to seem more spiritual. But Proverbs really counters this idea. It sees blessing as a gift from God. Proverbs 10.22 says, the blessing of the Lord makes rich. He adds no sorrow with it. Proverbs actually has a pretty largely positive view of money gained honestly. Gained honestly is kind of the, the important caveat there. Because the world is the Lord's and everything in it. We don't have this Greek view of stuff where physical things are lesser and negative and we need to transcend them to this higher spiritual reality. But we do so we, we enjoy these things with this posture of gratitude and, and an eternal perspective, right? To have true Christian contentment, we have to give, we give thanks for good food, an enjoyable vacation, a raise at work, nice clothes. A few weeks ago, we were, we were at, at my parents' lake cabin. How, how unchristian of, of, would be of me to sit there on the beach, a beautiful lake, and not just be grateful, right? If, if we're sitting there thinking, oh, we have too much, or or not enjoying God's gifts, we're really spurning, spurning good gifts from God. But we have to have that eternal perspective, right? We know that these things aren't an end in of themselves, but they're only a foretaste of blessing to come. They're pointers to the greater reality of being in communion with Him. So if we do so, if we enjoy these good gifts with an eternal perspective in mind, that'll protect our, our contentment and keep us from, from making, making the things themselves the end in of themselves. So, so far we've seen the Christian trusts in God's plan, trusts in God's sovereignty. That's, that's where Christian contentment lies. Christian contentment uh, enjoys God's financial and material blessings while carefully avoiding making money an idol. Next, 
Proverbs has a lot to tell us about relationships. And I can think perhaps one of our greatest sources of discontentment in our lives is our relationships with others, or maybe even perhaps our lack thereof. If I can maybe give a little plug for our men's group study we're going to be doing next Saturday, the book is called The Wisdom Pyramid, and one of its best chapters is uh, his chapter on the church. And he really develops this need for real physical community, to be known and have real strong relationships with people, and he's really juxtaposing that with our, our digital age. L- listen, listen here what, uh, what he has to say. In the digital age, we have the illusion of connection with our many social media followers, but we find ourselves lonely and unknown behind all the manipulative filters and layers of facade. Constant exposure to the problems out there through social media and news sites, oriented more around giving us bad news than good, gives an apocalyptic picture of the darkness of the world, leaving us angry and depressed. This is why a local church can be an antidote to our disembodied grief. It grounds us in a tangible geographic reality and reminds us that we are embodied people, not just brains on sticks. We are made for physical connection with people in real places, not just informational connection mediated through screens. One of our greatest sources of discontentment is our lack of community. Because, see, Proverbs, this great ancient book of wisdom, is constantly pushing us to seek good counsel. How can we do that if we're not in community with others? Proverbs 12.15 says, The way of the fool seems right to them, but the wise listen to advice. To get wise counsel, we have to, put, we have to find community. We have to put wise people around us that can speak into our lives and challenge our assumptions. Our assumptions. It's far too easy in this digital age to think our, our online community, our favorite writers, maybe our favorite social media hangouts, news pundits, that's the people who really know us. That's our real community. But do they really know you? Are we seeking wise counsel? If not, then perhaps a great source of our discontentment is our own, our own foolish decisions that might be helped by the advice of others or perhaps just loneliness. But we do have to, we do have to be ready. Sometimes counsel can sting. Proverbs 26, 27, verse 6 tells us, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an en- enemy. That's really profound, isn't it? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the wounds of an enemy. We need to be ready for brutally honest, honest advice at times if we're going to be shaped and grow. That's, that's what real friendship, that's what real wisdom comes from, seeing other perspectives. And I'm sure many of you are thinking, your greatest source of discontentment is not lack of counsel or lack of community, but the people who have failed you in the Christian community, people who failed you in your life, in your family, in your friends. If one of your favorite, say, online pastors fouls out of ministry or maybe says something really uh, ignorant or, or foolish, it might bum you out a little bit, but it isn't going to have that visceral feeling of when you're, when you're betrayed by a friend or let down by someone you know per- personally, face-to-face. There's a hurt there that transcends these virtual relationships. And this is why Proverbs 20, verse 6 says, Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find. You see, according to this ancient book of wisdom, finding faithful friends is hard. A faithful man who can find. Perhaps we're maybe a bit too naive. before We need to have more discernment before we fully trust someone. And if we're to be honest, are we this faithful friend to others? We know the gospel can help shape us into this kind of person, but are we there for others, especially in their time of need? 
Often this sort of rock-solid, time-tested relationship is brought about only through difficulty. Proverbs 17, verse 7, uh, 17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. A brother is born for adversity. When we experience difficulty and pain and loss, that's when we see who really cares for us. And that's in, in turn when we need to be there for others, when we need to be that faithful brother, that faithful friend. But lastly, on community, joining into community with other sinners is just never going to be utopian. We have to be a little careful by idolizing this need for community and wisdom to, to then put it up on a pedestal, pedestal that it, it can never be. We must affirm our need to be known, to be in vital relationships, especially with other Christians as Christians, but we also affirm there will be disappointment. There will be offenses, personality clashes. It's not all sunshine and roses. This is why Proverbs 17 uh, verse 9 tells us, whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Whoever covers an offense seeks love. We must be ready to cover an offense, to overlook things. We cannot always be dredging up the past issues over and over and over again. Only God will never ultimately disappoint us. All human relationships have issues. That's perhaps one of my, my favorite verses on Christian community is in Colossians 3, and Paul tells the, the Colossian Christians to bear with one another. Just put up with one another. Get ready just to, they're, they're going to bug you at times. Bear with one another. We will be a lot more content in our relationships in the church if we have this posture. If we know we're just going to have to bear with other Christians at times, we're just going to have to put up with people. People are going to have weird personality flaws and quirks, just as we all do. The wise, content Christians ready for this. It doesn't take them by surprise. But in considering all of this, we know we're helpless to do all this on our own, aren't we? It's our own, it's just our human proclivity to worry. It's our human proclivity not to trust God's ordination of our steps. It's our constant temptation as humans to want more money, more property, and possessions than we need. We can feel it. It's our consistent failure to be unwise in relationships, to avoid them when we need them, and to unwisely trust them before they're tested. We need Christ, who is, as Paul says, in whom all are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ, in Christ, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. We need Christ to, for any of these endeavors to succeed. We need to be connected to him who is wisdom incarnate, wisdom from above, through faith. And it's through this mystical union with Christ that the Spirit can work in a sense of contentment that's far beyond any capacity we have apart from him. This is why Paul can pray something so, uh, so amazing as this prayer he prays uh, for Christians to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Christ through the Spirit can give a knowledge that surpasses anything we can understand down to the depths of our souls. This is why Paul can give such a bold statement. This is a great summary on Christian contentment. He says in Philippians 4, he says, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what is the need. Uh, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. I can do all through him who gives me strength. I can do all through, through him who gives me strength. The famous Christian sports verse that you see, you know, written on everyone's baseball cap and everything, 
It's really about living in contentment with whatever God provides for us through the strength that Christ provides. That's, that's how you can do all things through, through uh, that, that's what he's talking about. It's contentment with God's provision. So as we, as we leave here today, we need to just examine our lives. Are we by the power of the Spirit? Are, are we grateful? At the, heart of Christ, at the heart of Christian contentment is really a, 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 a gratitude that Joss prayed today. Are we grateful for God's provisions? Are, are we seeking wisdom as we per, pursue relations with, relationships with others? As we're considering, considering difficult decisions in life, are, are we constantly going back and saying, Lord, we, I trust you to help guide me. I, le- I trust you to establish my steps. I know some of your established, the way you establish them may not be exactly how I want it to go, but I trust that you're going you're gonna to do it far better than I ever could. See, in Proverbs, wisdom cries out to us. Wisdom pursues us. I like that in the, in the, in the beginning uh, I, read that, I read that verse in Proverbs 1.20 where wisdom's crying aloud in the streets. So God is pursuing us with his wisdom all around us in Scripture and nature. Often, often the Proverbs points to the ant or to things in just the physical realm around us. It's really just a call for us just to open our eyes and to, and to look and to consider. Proverbs really, t- really make us take a moment to think about things, to, to think about the world that God has made it made. Christ is pursuing us for our own good, for our ultimate happiness, for our contentment and satisfaction in him. He's working on us to live skillfully in the world that God has made. So let's do so uh, humbly and with joy. Let's close in prayer. God our Father, we know our hearts are prone to wander. We're prone to foolishness and we thank you for this revelation of uh, yourself to correct our understanding. Remind us of all that Christ is for us. Remind us of the wisdom of your plan to rescue a people for yourself through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Grant in us ears to hear as wisdom calls to us, as it, as it challenges us, as friends maybe confront our foolish ways, as as your, your plans work out differently than, than we envision, as we struggle with uh, our hearts towards money and possessions, fill us with your understanding so that we can understand your ways and be satisfied and content in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.